Taking children away from black and indigenous families has a long history in our country. When children must be removed from their family, community, and culture, it can cause lifelong emotional trauma and damage to relationships. Keeping children safe from neglect and abuse is an important priority, but are there better ways of protecting kids while also keeping families intact? A new report looks at how family and community support to help children thrive could result in healthier long-term outcomes. We'll discuss it today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. The Alaska Travel Industry Association provides leadership and guidance to Alaska's tourism businesses for how to operate safely across the state. Members can access updated industry resources related to COVID-19 at alaskatia.org. This message sponsored by ATIA. It's Sobriety Awareness Month in Alaska. If alcohol is hindering you from living your best life, Recover Alaska is here to help whether you're sober thinking of reducing your drinking, or wanting to support a loved one who is struggling. Recover Alaska is normalizing sober and sober-curious lifestyles through its virtual Sober Lounge. Get inspiration, access resources, and measure your relationship with alcohol at recoveralaska.org. This message sponsored by Recover Alaska. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. Why are there far more indigenous and black children in foster care systems than white kids? How much does historical trauma, mistrust of government, and racist policies play a role in those removals? What are some of the best solutions for improving the future well-being for children and their families when there are problems and government child protective services must get involved? Here to describe new research on alternatives for the future are Jessica Sunnygook Ulrich. Jessica is an assistant professor at the UAA School of Social Work and a co-author of the study. Also with us is Yvonne Chase. Yvonne is an associate professor at UAA's Department of Human Services and also a co-author of the report called A Connectedness Framework, Breaking the Cycle of Child Removal for Black and Indigenous Children. Welcome, both of you. Thanks so much for being available today. You can also join us, Alaskans. Do you, have you been through the foster system or are you a foster parent? Do you have ideas for reforming the system so there are less separations? You can call us statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. So start us off uh, by telling us, um, Jessica, if you want to start us off, that would be great. How did the two of you team up on this research? Give us a little bit about, uh, you know, a little introduction to your work and uh, how you came together to do this. Uh, Jessica, start us off and then we'll move to Yvonne. Sure. So um, to give a little bit of background, uh, Yvonne and I both have worked in the child welfare system and uh, we both work at UAA and we both share the same supervisor um, director. So uh, this person, David Moxley, actually knew of our 
individual work and connected us. And so when we met and we talked and decided to collaborate and co-author a paper, we both share the same passion and drive in terms of looking at how we can improve systems, how we can improve outcomes for children involved with child welfare. All right. And Yvonne, talk a little bit about your work in that regard. Well, as, as uh, Jessica said, we both share the, the same passion for seeing change in a larger system. Um, and, and my experience, we've seen systems that are similar across the country. Um, I go back to uh, a time in the 90s when I served on the U.S. Advisory Board on Child Abuse and Neglect, uh, which was a national multidisciplinary team. And we thought that we had many of the answers or solutions at that point for uh, the larger child welfare system. And I think that we did have some, unfortunately, uh, Congress chose not to provide funding to implement some of those solutions and really, I think, crippled the system in the process. How big is the disparity uh, when we talk about these numbers between who gets removed by um, child protective services and who doesn't based on the child's ethnicity? What do you see there? Yvonne, do you want to continue on? Sure. I, you know, it really differs by state, um, but we see in every state a disproportionate number uh, of individuals, of children of, um, of color. Uh, whether it be um, indigenous children in Alaska and the lower 48, um, African-American, and sometimes, de again, depending on the state, um, Latino children as well. Why there's this disproportionate, um, these disproportionate numbers, I think that there are a number of issues that, um, that play in the, into that. I mean, part of it, I believe, is, uh, is systemic. Um, uh, systemic oppression uh, that we have seen uh, in those populations. Um, I think the other part that both Jessica and I talked about in or wrote about uh, in our paper uh, is really the uh, it's the issue of the way the system is um, configured. Uh, so that it doesn't really reach into a family in the sense of um, working with that family and on an individual and community level. Um, Jessica, you want to go on from there? Yes, Jessica, please pick it up there. And then um, if you were able to determine this, how does the timeline for removal differ from white homes versus indigenous or black or other families of color, both in how quickly they're removed and how long uh, they tend to be in the system then? Yeah, so to expand just a little bit more on what uh, Dr. Chase was sharing in regards to disproportionality here in Alaska, I don't know if people really realize that two-thirds of the children in out-of-home care are Alaska Native. And that's a highly disproportionate number, given that the general population of Alaska Native people here is around 20%. So it's been that way for um, the entire time that I've been involved with child welfare, which is going on soon 20 years. So um, 
it's been that way for a reason. And I feel like sometimes people don't connect the dots in terms of the history and understanding that Indigenous children have been removed from families and this created trauma. And then now child welfare is involved with the trauma and there's ongoing removal happening. So that's part of what we're trying to bring up is, is problematic within this, the child welfare system, that the ongoing removal is compounding the trauma rather than alleviating it in many ways. In regards to timelines, um, there has been research that shows that um, African-American and indigenous children are more likely to be removed. They're more likely to um, be involved with the system for a longer period of time uh, before they're either reunified with their family or um, adopted or entering a guardianship. And that's, there's a term called permanency uh, with regards to that. So there's a lot of languishing in the system that happens for um, indigenous and, and black children. And, uh, in comparison to um, white children and white families. So there are systemic issues that are involved that factor into these outcomes. And I feel like too often there's attention to given to the, the population, like there's sort of blame put on um, the individuals or the parents or um, there are generalizations made uh, that there's something wrong with a people instead of looking at there's something wrong with the system. So that's the other, we have many scripts we're trying to flip <laughs> mm. and helping us to change the gaze and change the way we look at this issue and, and problem solve together. Well, and the, and the ripple on effect of that perception that you were just talking about, too, can also permeate the, the minds of children. And then they will begin to think, well, what's, what's wrong with our family and our community that I have to be taken away? If people say, I need to be taken away, is there something wrong with my family? If you're just joining us, we are discussing... Uh, a new body of research uh, called A Connectedness Framework, Breaking the Cycle of Child Removal for Black and Indigenous Children. And on the line with us are Jessica Sunaguk Ulrich, the ass assistant professor at the UAA School of Social Work and a co-author of the study. Also, Yvonne Chase is an associate professor at UAA's Department of Human Services and also is a co-author. You can join our conversation if you have had experience in the foster care system, either as someone who went through the system or maybe you are a foster parent, or you have ideas for reform and um, finding ways so that there are less separations and more support for families, which we are going to be drilling down and talking about throughout this hour. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. And you can email questions or comments to talk at alaskapublic.org. This report is not a study of Alaska's Office of Children's Services, if I'm correct about that. It's a, a broad look at child protective systems. So describe what you undertook in this regard and in, in th throughout this body of research and, and what state systems you examined. 
Yvonne, you want to pick up there? Yeah. Yeah, I think what, well, Jessica actually uh, did quite a bit of work uh, looking at um, both Alaska as well as comparing it with some other states as part of her dissertation. Um, my experience um, comes from really one being a child welfare, welfare administrator here in Alaska uh, in the past and also in Washington state, um, but then serving nationally as we looked at systems across the country and the kinds of safeguards or lack thereof that they had for children um, in the system. And again, it, it differed by state, but there were definitely some similarities in terms of the disproportionality that we've talked about. Um, and also, you know, having been an administrator in the system, I have to say that the system often has um, its hands tied in many ways because child welfare system doesn't operate in a vacuum by itself. It depends on the other parts of government um, to be there for funding um, and, and to pass legislation um, that helps provide not just the funding and the resources, but the mechanisms um, for children and families to access the system and to actually be diverted from the system. Uh, and get services before they have to even get to that point. Jessica, you want to add to that? Yeah, and just to give a little background on the research I've engaged in, I interviewed 25 Alaska Native knowledge bearers of the child welfare system in Alaska. So I wasn't focused on studying OCS. Um, I was focused on asking them what they felt promoted child well-being because I feel like what we need is a, a different framework or a different theory to guide the practice to better improve the way that we do this work to promote the well-being of children, which in, includes safety and permanency under that umbrella. And what I learned from the knowledge bearers who represented foster care alumni, relative caregivers, and foster parents was the challenge and the trauma, like the, these stories came up in the discussions that I had with them. There is a lot learned in regards to the relationships that children need, but also the disconnect that has happened as a result of being involved with the child welfare system. So I feel like there's so much for us to listen to and to learn from people with lived experience that those that have been through and interfaced with the system have so many things for us to learn from in terms of coming up with the solutions, finding out what doesn't work, finding out what does help. And um, so there's, there's more that the system can do to listen to people with lived experience. Mm -hmm. That's uh, uh, definitely an important point. Thank you. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide if you'd like to join our conversation about this report called A Connectedness Framework, Breaking the Cycle of Child Removal for Black and Indigenous Children. 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. 
There are many points of note in your research write-up. This sentence, racial disproportionality is not by chance, and we need to see the implementation of social, social justice within child welfare. What's meant by not by chance, and what does social justice look like in this setting? Jessica, you want to continue on? Sure. So um, racial disproportionality is not by chance because of the history of child removal. Um, Black children were removed during the the time period of slavery, um, and that's very traumatic. And then there was child removal among Alaska Native people and American Indian people through residential boarding schools. And that was also traumatic. And these removals um, created trauma that we must acknowledge, that we must learn, that we must have the accurate history of in order to see that there are parallels still happening in terms of removal processes and traumas through the child welfare system, that there has to be something different implemented in order to end the ongoing removal and trauma process that has been happening for over a hundred years. So um, this is where social justice to, to me and what we put out there in the paper, it re-centers us on relationships. It centers us on well-being. It centers us on relational continuity. It helps us to see that we need to co-create something different, that the system is um, they are of and belong to the community. And I feel like when we come back to a social justice lens and we um, recenter the beloved community as the late representative John Lewis called it, um, this is where it's not an us and them mentality anymore that we see we must collaborate, we must work together. The system does not have the authority and power to continue these processes that the community has the authority and power to guide and to um, better improve and and that child well-being is about it being a shared responsibility amongst all of us Mm. that you you don't have to have a, a title behind your name in order to care for and love a child and that's what children need they need neighbors they need like everyone that interfaces with the child, you're you're partially responsible for their development and their well-being. Your research mentions a success story in Quinguillanoc. Tell us what that community did. Yeah, so this was um, back when I worked at, within child welfare. I was so excited to learn about what they were doing in this community. They developed a child protection team that was made up of various people from the community in different roles and positions. And they, um, they were preventative. They were, they um, were relational. They, instead of waiting for something to brew and potentially become a larger problem or issue, any time that there is any word or, or talk of a potential concern with the family, they just went up and, and, asked, how can we help you? How can we support you? Um, what's happening? And, and that relational process helped the community bring 
their number of children that were involved with child welfare, like down to, to zero in a relatively short period of time. And so that to me is an example of how connectedness and relationality can be implemented within a community and again, improve the, the safety and well-being of um, children. Well, it, it does seem like when you turn around the, the mindset of if, if I say I'm having trouble, I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, if I say I'm struggling, someone may take my kids away. If you can turn that around to, I need help. I'm, I'm struggling here. I don't have enough food or I don't have childcare. Who can help me? And know that someone will respond with assistance rather than punishment. I mean, that's just transformative. And, and it, it seems like that's what, um, we'll talk more about that and that's what you're advocating for. I want to go to the phones for a moment now. David is in Anchorage. Hi, David. Hi, how are you doing? Good. <clears throat> I just wanted to bring up maybe a historical um, origin for a lot of uh, this type of activity of removing children. And that is <clears throat> in 1905 in New York and in Illinois. Uh, that's when they started the very first juvenile court system. And the rationale for doing it was that they felt that there was too much delinquency going on with immigrants that were coming in and that uh, they used the courts to say, well, the, the reason for the delinquency is because the immigrants don't know how to raise their children properly. And so they would take them away using the court system. And that's the same kind of rationale that they've been using for Native Americans and other people. Uh, but there's an origin for you to start from is in 1905 in the juvenile courts. All right. Well, thank you um, so much for the call, David. And uh, there's so much to discuss in this realm. Um, Jessica, you were saying, and, and Yvonne, we want to get you back in here as well. Um, to be successful, everyone needs to be involved. How do you see that playing out in the future, especially in a social setting where people seem more isolated than in the past? And and in a state like Alaska, where privacy is enshrined in our Constitution and people may be a little bit reluctant to, you know, get into somebody else's business. How does that work? Do you want to take this, Jessica or Yvonne? Do you want to jump in here? <laughs> I see Jessica ready to jump in. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Just give a, a few ideas in terms of, um, and, and share a, a small story. When I um, I have two daughters who are in middle school, and uh, their friends would come over. We would offer food, and they would come over and just to eat and, and get together. And we created a safe space, and they knew that they could come to our place if they ever needed to. When there's the big earthquake that happened. I ended up having all the neighborhood kids coming into our place until we could get their parents um, reconnected. Often many of the parents were at work already and they were about to go to school. And so that's that to me is like being a safe haven for children is, is that process of, of having a place where they can go and turn to if needed for that assistance and support in, in a time of need. Um, I was given flowers on Mother's Day by our, my neighbor daughter, and I was her neighbor mom. So it's that relational piece. Like, do you know the children's names in your neighborhood? Um, do they know your name? Like, that's 
a, a first step. And I feel like when we establish those healthy relationships and teach them healthy boundaries and like they know that they can come to you um, and we have those relationships with their parents, like that is part of the magic, the relational magic of this being a shared responsibility and not waiting until something gets really bad or, you know, erupts into a crisis that now we need outside intervention to come in and, and do something. And I feel like tribes are really taking a leadership role and they're coming together and they're recentering child well-being and understanding that child well-being is collective well-being. So children grow up to become the healthy parents and the healthy relatives and the healthy community members. Like that's how important child well-being is. And so who I am and who a child is is also connected to a collective. And that's part of what my hope and wish is for everyone is to understand that we belong to a collective. And if we make shifts to a collectivist sort of philosophy and way of being with each other, we understand that it's not about, you know, oh, I need privacy and I'm, this is my kid and only mine, you know, this is my responsibility only. It's understanding we all are in this together. We all need to do our part. Our mm. children need multiple relationships with multiple adults and multiple people in their lives. Um, and yes, I do have a specific responsibility to my child, um, but not to be so closed off that we're shortchanging our children of that opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, Yvonne, um, we're going to take a break here in just a few minutes, but pick up there. And we had an email question. Did the authors find any correlation between whether the social workers in the foster care system were of the same ethnicity as the persons they were investigating? Kathy writes, to put it another way, do they think the dis disproportionality would change if the social workers were of the same ethnicity as the persons they were investigating? Yvonne, do you want to pick it up there? Sure, that's a good question. Let, let me uh, first just add something to Jessica's example, and then perhaps right after the break, we can come back to that question, because I think you know, we would like to discuss that as well. But one of the things that, um, you know, Jessica's example of being the neighborhood mom um, reminded me of, you know, where I grew up in a rural community in Michigan, where um, I knew all of the neighbors, the neighbors knew all of the children um, and very much the same thing. I mean, there were places where um, you knew that they were, you know, okay places. If your uh, parents uh, were not able to pick you up at school because you didn't feel well, well, there were certain neighbors that it was okay to have them pick you up at school. I think that, you know, we have lost a good deal of that in terms of that lack of connectedness at a community level. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that. But, um, you know, even here in Alaska, I've been here for over 30 years. And, you know, when I first came to Alaska, if your car broke down, somebody stopped immediately. You know, if someone else's car broke down, you'd stop and help them. Now you're a little concerned about, you know, stopping, you'd stop and maybe call for them, but you uh, weren't as helpful. Um, I think that we're seeing, you know, with crime rates and with other things that are occurring that move away from being that 
uh, close connectedness within a community that's needed and that the two systems, you know, that the system as a whole, whether it's child welfare or other systems, um, we've got to look at how do they interact with the community. So if if I haven't run over into your break, I can address the other comment. Yes, you uh, can. The uh, we've got a couple okay. minutes here. So the correlation okay. between ethnicity of social worker and children, did that make a difference? I think sometimes it makes a difference in terms of understanding the culture of someone else whose culture is not yours. Um, but, you know, can an individual from a different ethnicity uh, provide good services to someone? Absolutely. Um, but they have to be culturally trained. Uh, I don't like the word culturally competent because I don't think you ever become competent in someone else's culture, but you can become knowledgeable and you can understand um, their worldview and you can understand their family system. And if you understand their family system, regardless of the, the various cultures, you have a better sense of how can you, one, protect the child, but two, make sure that those connections with that family system remain intact. And and also, uh, how much latitude do they really have? Aren't their hands somewhat tied by the system itself saying, you know, here's are the steps you must take? I don't know how much, how much um, they can decide individually, case by case, but I would imagine they have system mandates that they have to also adhere to. There are system mandates, but, you know, one of the things that has plagued child welfare in all states um, is um, a lack of uh, sufficient staff. And my understanding right now, and we've seen this in, in a number of other uh, industries now because of COVID, that, um, you know, we're really having a staff shortage. But I understand from child welfare, and particularly from OCS here in Alaska, that it, 60% turnover. Mm. So what happens when you have that amount of turnover and you have vacant positions, you take on many more cases uh, than you should, and you're not able to spend the time um, to actually work with each child and each family. Or build any uh, trust I, or continuity or any kind of um, understanding of that relationship. Thank you. We are going to have to take a quick break. When we come back, we will continue our conversation about this report called A Connectedness Framework, Breaking the Cycle of Child Removal for Black and Indigenous Children, as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Parents, did you know that one out of four Alaska high school students currently use e-cigarettes? E-cigarettes are easy to use and easy to hide. What teens breathe in and out from e-cigarettes is not safe. It contains cancer-causing chemicals, toxic metals, and nicotine. Nicotine can lead to addiction. It can harm brain development and hurt memory, learning, and attention span. Parents, talk to your teens about vaping. Visit livevapefree at alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by the Alaska Tobacco Quitline.
Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing ideas for reforming the system of foster care and how families can have support on the front end before it gets to the point where children have to be removed. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide if you'd like to join our conversation. 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email us talk at alaskapublic.org. We're going to go back to the phones for just a moment. Um, Stephanie is in Fairbanks. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I am a therapeutic foster parent and have been for 20 years in the state of Alaska. And um, the reason that uh, children in general are removed has changed so much over the years. Um, a lot of it nowadays has to do with alcohol and drugs. And my biggest concern is, you know, this generational effect on our Native communities um, and alcohol and drugs, you know, and that's the main reason that we get our kids. And, you know, it's just um, the way it's being handled now, it's just for the most part not working at all. And, you know, you get kids um, that are uh, have been affected by, you know, in utero. And their parents were affected in utero and their parents were affected in utero. So you've got this big family and nobody's capable of taking these kids. And then you've got the state mandating that family take the kids. So it puts um, the system, it puts this incredible stress on, on an already broken system. And I'm really glad we're having this conversation because this is just one aspect of it that, the you know, needs addressing in many different ways. All right. Well, thank you for the call, Stephanie. Uh, and um, Jessica, I wanted to uh, turn to you now. If there's something that you'd like to respond to and what um, Stephanie raised, that would be great. And then uh, we'll move on to a question that I have. Yes, thank you so much for calling in, Stephanie, and for sharing that. And I think about it, too, in terms of the generational traumas that have occurred. So this is getting at the historical trauma piece. We um, we understand, I feel like Native communities are, we're better understanding of how it is that things are the way they are today. So um it's again back to the not chance piece that we have a disproportionate number of native children and out of home care. If we look at the history of colonization and all of the traumas that have happened, it's there's been more trauma in terms of not just child removal, but the great death, the influenza epidemic, the influx of um, colonial policies and practices and systems that we're attempting to assimilate us and and processes that disconnected us relationally. Um, And part of what my research is showing is there's a solution to this. There's a way, a pathway back to um, ourselves in terms of knowing who you are and where you come from. The the elders have been instructing generations um, 
to, to know that. And to me, part of knowing that is a healing process. It's a reconnecting process from the trauma and disconnect that has been created due to racism and internalized oppression and intergenerational trauma. And we have the solutions. The solutions are already within our communities. They're within our knowledges, within um, our our ancestral wisdom that tells us that relationships are central, hmm. that they help us have an, a, a relationship with ourselves, a healthy inner internal connectedness with ourselves. And so that's the re- reciprocity piece that's getting at um, what it is that we need to do to uh, to reconnect. Mm-hmm. And, and Jessica, um, Thinking about the the layers of of generational trauma of mistrust of government systems, you had said the system needs to recognize they don't control the community. The community needs to have the authority, not the system. And in in uh, thinking about that, I was struck by one of the examples given in your report and how parents of different ethnic origins may view authority differently when observing women and children in a waiting room. The example given was a black mother may keep her kids close and quiet because she's uh, fearful of getting in trouble with government systems, whereas a white mother may not even think about someone threatening her right to govern her own kids. Talk about your findings in that regard, the magnitude of the gulf in thinking between people of color who inherently don't trust government and white people who expect it to help them more than hurt them. Yeah, so to me, it's it's not wrong to have um, parents have different ways of teaching their children how to be safe. In, in this world that we live in. And it, it's a reality that um, children of color are treated differently based on how they look, based on the color of their skin. Um, and to me, it's like part of what trauma and disconnect has created is this aspect of being a sur- in survival mode, essentially. And so, yes, it's unfortunate, but we, we do need to still do our best to teach children how to be resilient to these oppressive forces that exist in our society. I would love to not have to use that term resilience. (laughs) I would love for all children to just be who they are. Mm. Um, But unfortunately, because of the history and and the patterns and the systems that are set into place and in motion and these biases and these Um, beliefs, false beliefs about who we are that, you know, that someone's better than or less than another human being that um, we do need resilience. We do need to teach children how to survive these systems. Um, And I feel like we, we need to do better than that as well. So that's part of where we as community can come together and and come up with what it is that is better than Mm -hmm. these oppressive forces. Yvonne, I was struck by the figures in the report, millions invested in community and family support and, and that sort of front end assistance before things 
go off the rails, and billions invested in the system of removal and fostering. When you look at those figures, the millions in support versus billions in removal, do those numbers take into account the long-term impact on the lives of young people who go through foster system, may have poor outcomes, and then have a lifetime of struggle emotionally, physically, financially, maybe with issues of substance abuse? Are those extended costs calculated in, into what is lost in productivity for a person who was taken away from family and community? No, I don't think so. And for some of those uh, children, as you mentioned, who age out in foster care uh, and because of not receiving the kinds of services that they need and not being connected in any way to their family, to their community, we often see them move on to the correctional system. And we don't calculate those expenses either. But, um, you know, one of the one of the difficulties for the systems it, whether it's child welfare or other systems, is holding on to prevention money. Um, and having been in state government myself, I know that whenever there was a downturn in the economy, the first thing that uh, was cut was, were prevention funds. And um, I remember when there were uh, programs in a number of states, I think it started in Hawaii with a program called Bright Beginnings. And it was really a... Um, Sometimes they use healthcare workers um, and other community members to visit families with their, who had children between the ages of birth and when they started school, sort of providing that community safety net that um, Jessica mentioned earlier about, you know, being able to go up and say, can I help you? And this was a helping person in the communities recognized as part of the healthcare system. It was a very successful program because you couldn't prove that something didn't happen, that didn't happen as a result. Um, again, those prevention funds were the first things that were cut. And yes, they could have saved and made a huge cut into um, the billions that are spent once uh, a child and family enters one of these systems. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Let's go back to the phones for a moment. Lynette is in Anchorage. Hi, Lynette. Hello. Did you have a question? Yes, I do. Well, actually, I wanted to make more of a comment. Um, my father was raised in a Catholic orphanage in Alaska, and he had to wear a plaque with a number on it when he attended school. And he had to have his mouth washed off, washed out with soap if he tried to speak the language. Uh, he didn't know that much of it, though. And and then, um, then my grandkids, three of them, they, their mother had drug abuse. And so the three kids were lost to the state. And a woman had uh, raised them in my hometown and there was a lot of culture there at first she tried to get them interested in the cultural upbringing but then it was turned around and there was no more focus on it when she adopted them and she adopted a lot of kids so they weren't encouraged anymore to really focus on that um and so it was like my grandkids start feeling ashamed of being Native. And so I was very concerned 
And now they're like, one is 20, one is about 18, and the youngest one is 16. And the very youngest one doesn't want to acknowledge themselves being Native. And so that hurts a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so they were told that they don't get their monies from the government um, and that the adopted mother will keep it even though they move out. And I was very concerned that they are losing, you know, um, who they are. Mm-hmm. I can because see why they, you would they definitely be. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, uh, thank you for sharing what is clearly a painful story. And um, uh, Jessica or Yvonne, your thoughts on, I mean, this is a, a, an illustration of what you're talking about. Uh, this, you know, the long tail of trauma that can continue on after children are removed. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I've also seen that I heard that from some of the people that I interviewed, I've experienced some of that myself. So I'm Alaska native. I'm a Nupak. I'm a tribal citizen of no Eskimo community, a descendant of the native village of Wales. My family's been through similar um, struggles and challenges and, um, and I feel like part of what I'm we're putting out there in this research in this paper is um, this connectedness framework, so that we help children um, have a relational identity. And so the approach that I would take for your grandchildren, Lynette, would be to it's not something you flood them with all at once, but that they have a connection with you. Who else can they have connections with among the family? Who else among the the community could give them some guidance or um, insights or pride in who they are as an Alaska Native person? Um, What connections are they getting to have with the land, with the history, with knowing their ancestors? Do they have indigenous names? Um, Are there activities happening in the community that they could have access to and just be a part of like dancing or singing or drumming or um, culture camps or, you know, there's different ways that we can um, connect them, reconnect them. And then it's up to them in terms of the pacing of that. And it's a, you know, it's always a case by case basis. That's something that I was reminded of in the, the research that I did that, Every child is unique and what their needs are is unique. And so we have to remember that. Mm-hmm. So my hope is that um, children, if the, there has to be child welfare involvement, if there has to be, you know, out of home placement, that there's follow through, there's relational continuity in, in these various ways that help children stay connected Absolutely. Thank you for that, Jessica. We are going to take another short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about how to improve outcomes for children and families in the future. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. It's Sobriety Awareness Month in Alaska. If alcohol is hindering you from living your best life, Recover Alaska is here to help whether you're sober thinking of reducing your drinking, or wanting to support a loved one who is struggling. 
Recover Alaska is normalizing sober and sober-curious lifestyles through its virtual Sober Lounge. Get inspiration, access resources, and measure your relationship with alcohol at recoveralaska.org. This message sponsored by Recover Alaska. NEA Alaska is a professional education association representing over 11,000 of Alaska's dedicated public school employees. NEA Alaska members are united in their commitment to provide an excellent education for every student, regardless of background or zip code. Together, NEA Alaska members work with colleagues, parents, and their communities to build strong public schools that are productive, safe, and welcoming to all. Learn more at NEAalaska.org and help NEA Alaska reach, teach, and inspire all Alaska students. This message sponsored by NEA Alaska. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing a new report called A Connectedness Framework, Breaking the Cycle of Child Removal for Black and Indigenous Children. And we have the co-authors on the line with us today. Jessica Sonniguk Ulrich is an assistant professor at the UAA School of Social Work. And Yvonne Chase is an associate professor at UAA's Department of Human Services. You can join our conversation in our final 10 minutes here today at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255 statewide. In Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422-550-8422. I want to talk about some of your conclusions that you came to in your report, and especially uh, as it relates to in Alaska with what tribes are doing, where you see progress. Uh, there are compacts with tribal courts, and um, I think it was maybe Yvonne, you, I want to back up just a little bit. I think you were the one that said that the executive branch and judicial branch recognize tribal authority and responsibility, but not the legislature. If that was you, Yvonne, talk a little about that. Well, something actually was in the uh, the news just recently, um, and and I was actually a bit surprised by the news um, because it had occurred to me that the legislative branch would not have recognized tribal sovereignty as well. And I think it's important that all three branches of government uh, together uh, recognize tribal sovereignty. Mm. I see. Okay. And um, I want to go to the phones for just a moment, but then Jessica will get you in here to talk a bit about uh, where you see progress being made. And um, then I'd like you both to talk about the conclusions in your report and what you're advocating for. Let's go to June in Dillingham. Hi, June. Good morning. Thank you for having this show. I'm in complete agreement with the speakers. I just have a... um, where, in fact, we're at the tribal court waiting for 11 a.m. Uh, children in need of aid. And I'm thankful that OCS, because of the, um, the system set up now, with every child who belongs to our tribe, which is Julian Tribal Council in Dillingham, um, they, they come through us to see if we want to take over the case. And it has been working out where we're able, because all of us in the tribe are somehow related, therefore we're family, we usually um, have family members take over. When I was growing up in the 1950s, and I come from a little village, about 200 people, if there was a problem... With a, 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 a parents not taking care of their children, 
the we didn't have tribal tribes. We just had people in the villages. They would take the child. A family member would take the child until the parents straightened up and said, "Hey, we're we're ready to take our child back." So what you're talking about? Yes, June. Um, thank you. I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but we are running out of time quickly here. And uh, I so appreciate your story, though. And, and it, it really segues well with exactly what Yvonne and Jessica are talking about, about the community being more proactive and helping out. So let's talk about some of those conclusions that your report has here. And um, they uh, suggest that Tribes and other oppressed populations should have legally recognized roles in designing culturally appropriate and and relationship systems of care to assure the safety of their children. It also has suggestions about turning around um, the funding for programs and more should be invested in those support networks. Um, so, Yvonne, give us uh, about a minute of your thoughts here, and then we'll uh, close out with Jessica. Well, I think, you know, just listening to the uh, the last call in person and the coordination between OCS and the tribe in that particular example um, just shows that things can be workable uh, and communities can connect with these larger systems. Um, but we've we've got to give the system uh, an opportunity to be able to do that as well. So when you find certain um, barriers that are within the systems themselves, in order in order to do that, whether it's funding uh, or whether it's the mechanism that I've seen, where they're not able to actually make that kind of coordination happen. Um, that's where I think we have to have, as someone told me years ago, we have to have change agents on the inside uh, of government and we have to have advocates on the outside that are constantly pushing for change. I think we still need that. Mm-hmm. Jessica, your thoughts here about what you'd like to see come forward from uh, this report and your recommendations. Yeah, so many good things coming up in this conversation. I really appreciate this opportunity today. And so I feel like part of what my hope is, is for multiple shifts to happen in the narrative, in in the paradigm, in, in the way that we think of how to support child well-being. It's to understand in order to have healthy children, we also need healthy families and healthy healthy communities, that it's a reciprocal relationship, that children become our healthy family members and communities, that children belong to all of us. It's a shared responsibility, that um, children are born with unique gifts that they share and teach us that, so understanding that children, you know, it's not this hierarchical thing. It's it's us coming together to reforming the circle, as Harold Napoleon put it in his book, that um, it's it's about all of us doing our own healing work so that we are better um, able and ready to support others who are also on their healing journeys. It's acknowledging that trauma piece and coming back to an energy of love and that love can guide us. It can 
energize us. It can help us through all of the, the challenges that are involved. And, and that's where I feel like um, it's about coming back in right relationship with ourselves and others. And it's our systems coming back in right relationship with community. So it, it's a multi, this issue that we're talking about today, it's multifaceted. There are many reasons why we see some of the numbers and outcomes and those sorts of things that we see today. Um, and the solutions need to be multifaceted. And that's part of what we're putting out there in our papers that it, we should have a relational framework guiding all of these multifaceted solutions that it's not just child welfare's job to promote child safety. It's all of our jobs. It's all of every system's job that interfaces with a child. And so it's a collective mentality. And I feel like when we do that and we heal and we continue to shift and we change the narrative and we know that the majority of Alaska Native children are safe and well and in their own homes and in their own families and communities. Like it's not about this issue being a, a Native family community issue. It's the systems issue. <laughs> It's there's a, a change needed within the system. There's a change needed within the policy and the practices and the way that the work's being done. The system is harming multiple people. There, whether you work within it or you're interfacing as a foster parent or relative caregiver, you know, like there are many issues that exist within the system as it is right now. And we need leaders from our community to be heard, the people with lived experience. And I feel like if we can do that, if we change the narrative, if we change the way we look at these issues, if we do our healing work, that we're going to have healthy children once more in a healthy collective. And a healthier future for everyone. Absolutely. Yes. Um, as you were saying, both of you, it, it does take community involvement. I grew up in a village and I know many times in the evening there were older ladies that would drive around and tell us kids to get home. So, you know, the community was involved. We listened to the elders of our community. Thank you so much to Jessica Suniguk Ulrich, assistant professor at UAA School of Social Work and a co-author of the study, A Connectedness Framework, Breaking the Cycle of Child Removal for Black and Indigenous children. We'll link to that work on our website at alaskapublic.org. And Yvonne Chase is an associate professor at UAA's Department of Human Services and also a co-author of the study. Thanks so much to both of you for this important work. Thanks to our engineer, Tobin Shelby, our producer, Adlin Baxter, and on the phones and social media today, Kavitha George. I'm Lori Townsend. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.